The key to small business success is maintaining strong relationships with your customers. That's what Constant Contact has been helping small businesses do for over 25 years. With their robust suite of email and digital marketing tools, you don't have to be a marketing pro to find customers, build relationships, and grow your business. Constant Contact's digital marketing platform makes it easy to send automated emails, manage all your contacts, grow your list, advertise on social media, and more. And with all the data you need at your fingertips, it's easy to see what your customers respond to. Constant Contact takes the guesswork out of communicating with your customers effectively. Start building, expanding, and nurturing your customer base to drive better results. Go to ConstantContact.com to get started for free today. Constant Contact. All the digital marketing tools you need, all in one place. Your four-year-old can discover the joy of learning. Waterford Upstart is a proven effective pre-K learning program that includes fun songs, games, and activities that prepare your child for success in school. We provide all the tools you need to help your child learn to read, including a coach, a computer, and internet access. And because it's already paid for, it's free for you. Listen, uncomplicate the way you do pre-K. Enroll today at waterfordupstart.org. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. This week, I'm going to give a quick shout-out to Andy. I gave him a shout-out at the end of last week's episode, um, but unfortunately, I think it might have cut off. I know a couple of people didn't hear it, so Andy, here's your shout-out for this week. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope you enjoy this episode, because we are joined again by our very own special guest that we have on here quite regularly um, with a new episode. Now, we had a choice of a few episodes this week, and Dad, you've got for us an episode that I have, don't know a thing about, so this is one I literally have never You walked never into this of. one, yeah, didn't you? I, I thought I'd pick this one because I literally have no idea about it. It's not something I've ever looked into or, or know anything about, so... Okay. What are we talking about? Uh, well, I'm going to tell you the story of a gentleman around about 1900. A gentleman called Robert Falcon Scott. Yeah. Okay. And he was a British explorer. All right. So I'm going to tell you about, well, the story of Mr. Scott. Okay. All right. So again, like I said, this was a name I'd never heard of. Um, I have heard of the nickname. Yes. But I'd never heard of his name, so which explains why I've probably never heard of the story. Um, you might know some bits of this story. Okay. Shall we? Get it? Yeah. Okay. So, we're going to go back to the 1900s, and at the turn of the century, it was realistically a time of wonder. we got sailing ships giving way to steam. You've got the Industrial Revolution that's well underway. Uh, steam engines and trains are taking people longer distances around the world, and the world is actually becoming a much smaller place. Uh, it was during this time that explorers became fashionable. 
Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, I know some of them. I know. You know, we're talking of a time before radio. Yeah. yeah. So no radio communication. I know there's a couple like of explorers I do want to cover, but like I said, this isn't one yeah. I know. I mean, exploring places like deepest Africa, the Amazon rainforest, the North and the South Poles, and places like that. So there was fierce competition for people to be the first person to reach in these individual areas and britain at the time was at the forefront of this okay sounds pretty average for us yeah well there you go (laughs) so in the preceding 60 years several countries sent expeditions to all of these places and we're talking africa amazon north and south poles okay yeah Yeah. uh the place we're talking about is the Holy Grail of the South Pole. Okay. All right, Antarctica. Um, And this is the story of the first people to actually reach the South Pole. Okay. Um, Interesting. So what do you you know? What is the pole? I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's uh, somebody from Poland. Yeah, I mean, I always imagine imagine the old... um, like the candy cane that sticks out, you know, sticks out the Earth. North yeah. Pole. And, but yeah, it's the... Okay, it is an imaginary pole. It is one of two points where the Earth's axis rotation intersects its surface. So in, in, intersects its surface. How about that? Right. I had to put my teeth in. Yeah. That was, uh, okay. not, not yet. You're not that old no, yet. <laughs> not yet. Um, and it's the most southerly point on the surface of the Earth. And obviously, it lies exactly opposite to the North Pole. So for all you flat earthers out there, you know, <laughs> just remember where this is. Yeah, basically, it is the bottom of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's it's described as 90 degrees south or zero degrees latitude. Okay. All right. So that's the technical term. And, I mean, it's the point on Earth from which every single direction is north. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Now, the uh, the South Pole is situated on the continent of Antarctica, and for those not familiar with it, it is a windswept, barren land covered in ice. Okay, there is very little that survives there. The lowest recorded temperature was eighty two point eight degrees minus, mm-hmm. which for your American listeners is minus one hundred and sixteen. Okay, that's uh, FC. Freezing yeah. cold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not Yeah, that's not warm, is it really? Okay, and that was actually recorded on the twenty third of June nineteen eighty two. So only less than fifty years ago. Wow. The highest temperature in Antarctica. Okay. The summer. Is minus twelve. So, so still not, not very warm. Which again for your American yeah. listeners is ten degrees. Okay. So yeah, that's that's pretty damn cold. And that's the highest temperature it's ever been. Yeah, not okay. somewhere you'd want to be with no clothes on. The actual pole itself, the the, the South Pole, lies at an altitude of nine thousand two hundred feet above sea level, and okay. it is estimated that the ice at that point is two thousand seven hundred meters thick. That's eight thousand nine hundred feet. Wow thickness of ice and according to greta thunberg getting smaller every day (laughs) (laughs) it is isn't it um the nearest 
open sea is a place called the Bay of Wales, as in Wales, W-H-A-L-E-S, the big sort of sea mammals. And that is about uh, 810 miles distance from the pole. Okay, so it's quite a big area. It's a big area. Another feature of the area is that between March and September, it receives no sunlight and exists in a permanent twilight. Uh, May to August, it is in complete darkness. And September to March sees the the sun never dropping below the horizon, so it remains in constant daylight. I mean, it is a hostile environment. It seems so weird to think, and I know there are other countries like that as well, where they, you know, I don't know if any of you guys listening, uh, you know, are from any of those countries, but, I mean, that just seems so weird to go sort of months Mm -hmm. with no light. The North Pole is a vast amount of ice floating on the north of the planet. Okay, you can actually sail under the North Pole. In fact, an American submarine did it. Wow. Was the first one to do it, Yeah. The South Pole is completely different. The South Pole is land covered in ice. It is actually a continent. There is land there. All right. Wow. And this particular podcast that we're going to talk about is probably the most famous polar explorer and his expedition to the South Pole. Yeah. Okay. And a man I've never heard of. <laughs> a man, the man you've never heard of was born on the 6th of July... Uh, 6th of June 1868 in Plymouth in England Um, he was named Robert Falcon Scott and he was the third of six children born to John Scott the family were fairly well off Um, in fact Scott's father was uh, a a brewer he made he made beer cool Um, he was a magistrate and the family had a military background his grandfather and four uncles all served in the army or the navy British Army and Navy. Yeah. Yeah. That was quite common, though, back then. I mean, majority of people did have some sort of military background. It did. I mean, this directed uh, Robert's early life, and in actual fact, he followed in some of his family's footsteps, and he joined the Royal Navy in 1881, when he was 13 years old. Yeah, now, some of you guys obviously listen to, to some of the other podcasts, and I do make that point that, you know, back in the day, it was really common to join the navy at such a young age and and race through the ranks from a from a kid almost. Yeah, oh yes, totally. Because they sailing ships were extremely uh, complex pieces of machinery. Yeah, and there were you small know. spaces that kids could get into, and yeah, you know, they were necessary for. You know, when we talking when he joined the Royal Navy, you know, to to put it into pers- in, into perspective, he joined the Royal Navy in eighteen eighty one. Mm-hmm. That was seven years before Jack the Ripper. Right. Okay. So we're going, it is going back sometime, yeah. right? Early 18, 1899, while, while he was away on leave, he had an encounter with a gentleman called Clements Markham, who happened to be president of the Royal Geographical Society. And he learned from him about an impending Antarctic expedition. Uh, it was the first official one since that of uh, James Ross in 1839, um, in which the ships, well, the ships Erebus and Terror uh, took part. Funnily enough, <laughs> they're, the, they're the same ships that were used on Franklin's later Lost Arctic Expedition in 1845, but they were 
around in 1839. But the society were looking to put together a crew and Scott realised that it was the opportunity for an early command. He wasn't a captain, but he thought, yeah. Um, he wasn't at all interested in the Antarctic, but he saw an opportunity and volunteered to lead the expedition. So it's just a chance to... Just a chance, yeah. yeah. And Sir Clements Markham, who was putting the whole thing together, he actually wanted a completely naval complement. So Scott was in the right place. Yeah. So that makes sense to... Um, to what navy guys when you but the see. actual society wanted a scientist in overall command see i can understand in charge in command of the expedition but not in control of the ship mm. do you know what i mean so there were um there's a big debate over the makeup and command structure of this expedition and although scott may not have been the society's first choice he became the leader and commander of what became known as the national antarctic expedition later to be called the discovery expedition uh it was named after the ship that they're going to use okay <laughs> yeah. so uh, uh scott was promoted to the rank of commander before they left and the cost of putting everything together was quite high even in those days it was the equivalent of ninety thousand pounds which is about twelve and a half million dollars oh, okay. in today's money. I was going to say ninety grand. That doesn't sound that much, but yeah, twelve and a half million. That's uh, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite a bit. The National Geographic Society couldn't afford it, so they went for sponsorship. And Coleman's, which was a company at the time, believe it or not, provided the flour and the mustard. Yeah, uh, Cad mustard Cadbury's gave £3,500 in weight of yeah. chocolate. And for those of you in America who have never tried Cadbury's chocolate, there's a little plug, because it's better than everything you've got. <laughs> <laughs> um, and believe it or not, Birds, which is another British yeah, company, uh... they actually donated baking powder and custard powder. Okay. Yeah. So they, they got a few, like, I mean, birds... Birds is the dessert company, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, lime juice was provided by a company called Evans, Lester and Webb. Um, lime was needed. Mm -hmm. Scurvy was still something that, that happened. It was a, a, and For those of you who don't know, that's why you call us limeys, because we invented the cure for scurvy. Yes, yeah. which is a uh, deficiency which, of vitamin C, I believe. Yeah, which I find very strange that it's used as an insult when we created the cure. <laughs> but anyway, we'll, we'll breeze over that one. Jaeger gave uh, a 40% discount on specialist clothing. And Bovril supplied beef extract, oh. which is a beef drink in here in the UK. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> if, you can, yeah. if anyone can get hold of Bovril, it's like, um, it looks like tar, doesn't it? Yeah, or, and you just mix it in. Molasses. It's a beef-flavoured... Yeah, big teaspoon into a hot hot water and... Just stir it. It's absolutely gorgeous. I yeah. love Bovril. So there you go, some some British companies. The ship was built specially uh, by Dundee Shipbuilders, and it was designed specifically to work in Antarctic waters. Believe it or not, it was the last three-masted wooden sailing ship built in Britain. Hmm. The cost of it, including the engines, because it was powered by steam engines as well, was five 
just over five and a half million dollars. Uh, yeah, million. Yeah, yeah, five and a half million dollars. You get you get confused, don't you? Because you say we're so pounds. used to saying pounds. Yeah. I do it all um, the time, don't worry. I mean, she was actually launched by Lady Markham in 1901 as the uh, SY Discovery, which is a sailing yacht. Okay. Yeah, that stands for. Um, and there was a lot of uh, actual interest in the expedition. I mean, so much so that King Edward VII, he actually visited the Discovery before it set sail on the 6th of August. So the king came down. Hmm. And, and actually looked around the ship and spoke to the, the members of the expedition. The new king. He'd only yeah. been king for a few He'd months. He'd only been king for a few years. Queen, Queen Victoria had uh, only recently died. So, off it sails, the discovery, mm-hmm. on the 6th of August, 1901. And eventually, it reached New Zealand. Okay. <laughs> Believe it or not, 29th of November. Okay, that's not that. That's long. a. That is. I mean, that's just August to November. That's three months. Three months. But I mean, oh, I suppose I was going to say it's probably not, but it's steam powered now, so it's got a little bit it, more. It, kick it, it was. It, it was sailing. The steam powered engines were mainly for breaking through ice, from what I can actually see. Yeah. Oh, that's fair enough. But yeah, I mean, I suppose it is quite a long time to to travel, but it's. I mean, I mean. Why New Zealand, though? Would well, there's, there's, I, I couldn't find out why they went to New Zealand first. Yeah, it seems really strange to go under South Africa and across. Yeah. Cape of Good Hope, isn't it? South Africa. It is, yeah. It just seems uh, a bit weird. When, you, but when you're at South Africa, you'd just go south, wouldn't you? You would have thought so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I would have, but, mm, but no, they obviously they've never didn't. done it before, have they? So, so. on the uh, 21st of December, so they were in... New Zealand for just under a month. 21st of December, 1901, they set sail for Antarctica, arriving at the ice on the 4th of February, 1902. Okay. Right. It's still taking them a bit of time to bloody get there as well. Yeah. First thing they did, sent up an observation balloon, 600 foot, and a report comes back, one word, white. Yeah, I think that's... uh, (laughs) It's a pretty good way to describe it, I suppose. Okay. Now, although the expedition had been thoroughly researched and provisioned, nobody had any experience in polar exploration, either north or south. Okay. So there was no specialised training in either the equipment or the technicalities of just surviving the environment. Um, Dogs were taken, along with skis. Um, and the dog's performance really impressed Scott. He wrote down his. We have we have his diaries. Okay. Okay. And I'm assuming they weren't huskies that they took. They would have been. Uh, they would be winter Russian winter dogs, I think. Oh, um, so they did sort of pick. Yeah. Rather. Than- um, the expedition was actually because it was the Royal Geographical Society. It was one of scientific discovery as well as exploration, and. Scott quickly discovered that the dogs could not only pull the sleds, but they could actually be killed en route and supply food for other dogs, increasing their range. They could be killed en route? Yeah. Oh, all right, okay. So as the, as the, the number of dogs required to pull the sledges decreased, they, um, yeah. they didn't That's need weird, so many though, dogs. Yeah, I know, but you, it seems, nowadays that just seems so brutal. Well, we don't need that one, so just kill it. 
Yeah. But it wouldn't, they wouldn't get away with it now, would they? Well, no, they wouldn't. So, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, in the first season that they were there, the dogs died of disease. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So, so the, uh, the expedition was used to perfect the best way to travel on ice and snow and how to, inv- uh, how to survive the, the actual environment. And, <laughs> and it's going to be a very, very steep learning curve. I mean, during an attempt to, to ice travel, a, a blizzard actually trapped the expedition in their tent while they were making a return journey. And uh, the decision to leave the tents and push on resulted in the death of one sailor, a gentleman called George Vince. And it's because he couldn't see where he was going. He just fell over a precipice into a, in, gone. In, 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 and gone. Uh, he, uh, they never actually found him. And wow. uh, that would be the 11th of March, 1902, that that actually happened. And his so body was never found. Body was never found. They're still there, probably. Yeah, somewhere in the ice. Yeah, probably completely, like, perfect. Frozen well. in time, yeah. yeah. Um, so the first year saw long journeys south in the direction of the South Pole. But they did try to hope to reach it, but, but they never did. The uh, actual main attempt was uh, was taken in march and uh, scott a gentleman called ernest shackleton and edward wilson managed to get about 530 miles from the pole okay so they did quite well all right the return journey back to the main camp uh, it was very very difficult and they had to pull their own sledges okay all right so it's a long way to pull sledges it is uh the only way that they could make it back was to move half the equipment a short distance, then go back for the other half, which meant they would have to travel three miles for every single mile covered. And the journey took 96 days and actually ended up a round trip of 960 miles. So if they'd have done that all in one direction, they'd have made it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they'd have made it, yeah. <laughs> only just. Yeah, but then they um, wouldn't have got back. But the... The actual effort resulted in uh, Ernest Shackleton becoming very ill with scurvy and having to be sent home on the relief ship in March 1903. Hmm. Okay. The intention was that uh, the Discovery would sail home with the relief ship, but it was stuck in the ice, so it couldn't move. And therefore, it had to stay there for the time being, and they took the time to uh, carry out further trips into, uh, into the Antarctic and carry out experiments. 1904, at the beginning of 1904, two relief ships turn up, and with the help of explosives, they managed to free the Discovery. And they did that on the 16th of February, so the expedition returned to England. Yeah. All right. Uh, They got back 10th of September, and Scott was promoted to captain, and he became a national hero. Yeah, you know, he's, 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 he's the first man that's been down to the Antarctic, come back and, and reported it. All right. So 1907, so three years later, Scott revealed to the Royal Geographic Society that he wanted to go back with actually a view to reaching the South Pole this time. This so was this, his sole purpose. So he's gone from joining for the, the fact that he can get a promotion... And not really being that interested in it to it being sort of his yeah. one dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He didn't make it public, so nobody knew about it except the, the uh, RGS. 
But unfortunately, Shackleton did go public. And he said he was going to try for the South Pole in a private expedition. Now, because the two were on the 1903 expedition, Mm. Shackleton agreed that they would not make the attempt from the same base camp or the same shoreline that the 1902-1903 expedition had gone from. That was an agreement between Shackleton and Scott. Okay, that makes sense. So it's a fair game, basically. Yeah? Yeah, rather than... So, Shackleton sails off for the Antarctic in August 1907 in a ship called the Nimrod. Now, he's not able to locate a suitable landing site, which caused himself a little bit of a problem. So, Shackleton's basic answer was, sod it, I'll use the one that we used before. Yeah. So he broke the agreement. Uh, This eventually caused a major rift when Shackleton returned. Shackleton did not make the South Pole. Yeah. But he got within 100 miles of it. Okay, so he was pretty down close. He was pretty close. All right. Now, the fact that Shackleton had got close but ultimately failed to reach the South Pole gave Scott basically a kick up the arse to speed up his preparations. And the British Antarctic Expedition of 1910 was going to be known as the Terra Nova Expedition. They had some improvements on the earlier one. They got three tracked vehicles made by a company called Vauxhall uh, were made available. And, I mean, Scott knew that what they call man-hauling, which is people pulling a sledge, was going to be impossible and that motorised would be the ideal. Uh, He realised that motorised transport wouldn't get him all the way. So in addition to these three vehicles, he decided he was going to take 17 horses Okay, that seems really stupid. Funnily enough, yeah, it was. Yeah, that seems like a really stupid idea. (laughs) But for reasons that you're not actually going to think about. Okay. um, Because Shackleton had actually almost reached the pole using ponies. Okay, so logic is horses are bigger. Yeah, so... so They're also not designed for that sort of temperature. June the 15th, 1910... Scott's ship, the Terra Nova, which was an old converted whaler, set off from Cardiff in South Wales, um, and he wasn't on it. (laughs) He was still fundraising, but he managed to join the ship in South Africa before continuing on to Australia this time and arriving in October. Now, it was while he was in in Australia, he received a telegram from a Norwegian explorer. Now, the uh, the explorer was uh, Amundsen, but the message said, beg leave to inform you, Fram, F-R-A-M, proceeding Antarctic, Amundsen. That's the message that came through. Okay. All right, now, we don't know how long it actually took to get there. No, but that... But, you know, he was in Australia ready to go to the Antarctic, and he gets this message. Now, you'd you'd wonder what that message meant. He knew exactly what that meant. Uh, Amundsen was named Roel Elgebret Gravning Amundsen. He was a Norwegian explorer. He was born in 1872. And in 1910, he planned to embark on an expedition to reach the North Pole. Okay. So he was going for the North Pole. But 
1909, he heard that two Americans, a gentleman called Frederick Cook and Robert Peary, had claimed to have reached the North Pole. So he ain't going to be the first there. So, I mean, actually, it turned out that they didn't actually reach the North Pole. And, and the North Pole wasn't actually reached until 1926. Um, and it was reached by Amundsen himself. Oh, right. So he, he did do it, but he's obviously turned around and gone, no, sod that. I'm not going to be the second man there. I'm going to be the first man to yeah. the South Pole. And Amundsen had left on a ship called the Fram, the F-R-A-M, in 1910, in June, uh, and he left for the North Pole. But instead of going north, he headed south, and he arrived in Madeira before he told the crew and the sponsors of the change. So he didn't tell anybody, we're going south. (laughs) And that's from Madeira is where he sent this telegram to Scott. So you're sort of thinking, hang on a minute. It's a bit sneaky. A bit sneaky. We're going to go north, all the expeditions going north, and then suddenly we get on a boat and we go south. Mm. Yeah, not good. But he's not part of the British. No, he's he's Norwegian. He's got exactly his own right to go for it as everyone else. Yeah. You notice I used the word south. Yeah, because we're from London. Because we're from London, innit? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is south. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Having left Australia, things didn't actually go very well for Scott. I mean, his ship, the Terra Nova, got caught in a storm. It came close to sinking. And this is even before it reached the Antarctic. Then as it got close, it got stuck in ice, and they remained stuck in that ice for 20 days, a lot longer than other ships had previously experienced. Um, And the delays meant a late arrival on the continent, so they didn't have much time for preparation before the Antarctic winter set in. So they offloaded the equipment from the ship to the shore... (laughs) and the biggest and most powerful of the tracked motor sleds fell through the ice. Ah, right. So they lost it. Wow. (laughs) This is not really a a great start. Not having a good start. With the onset of winter, the weather deteriorated, so they decided that the expedition's main, main supply point was going to be 35 miles closer to the coast yeah yeah so realistically it's 35 miles further away from the actual pole okay it made sense because you know they had to it the weather was getting colder the snow was uh the 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 snows and the blizzards and everything it's it's all sort of relative yeah but their their main base the supply depot from where everything was going to leave would be 35 miles further away from the pole. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Um, almost like a day's walk, isn't it, when you think about it? Um, And they named this place One Ton Depot. Okay. Yeah. Now, Scott's plan was to use the winter months to set up a route to One Ton and dropping off little caches of supply en route. Yeah. 25th of January, a week after setting up the base camp, he sets out with ponies dogs and motor sledges the two motor sledges he's got to lay the the caches the the little piles of stuff (laughs) the two sledges were unreliable but they you know they they weren't the greatest thing you've got to remember we're talking 1910 they're not i mean cars weren't very good in those days you start sticking something with an engine down in freezing 
cold, it's, it's not going to work not very, well, very well. Uh, seven of the ponies that he'd taken died on the return journey from one ton. Right, okay. All right. At least they but got meat. he set up the route and deposited the supplies, so he's now ready for his attempt on the pole. Now, while he's waiting for the Antarctic winter to finish and to break, he receives news that Amundsen was only 400 miles away to the east. He was also on the coast. Okay. So, so he- he'd made it. But his starting point meant that he would have to travel 69 miles less to the pole than Scott would. Okay. So he's got a, slight, he's got a better advantage. So he's got an advantage. Yeah. Right. November the 11th, 1911, the weather finally good is it's finally good enough for Scott to start his 1000 mile journey to the South Pole. Jesus. It's just under 1000 miles. That's a hell when you think about it with nothing. So you've got you, really? yeah. He had 10 ponies, a few dogs and 12 men and 1000 miles to and cover. And 1000 miles to cover. The round trip would be slightly short of 2000 miles and they estimated it would take 4 months. Right. Right. So before embarking on the start of the journey, he left instructions for the relief team to leave the coast, which is a place called Cape Evans, around the first week of February and make their way to him on the return from the pole. He estimated that the meeting should happen around the first week of March, and that was those those were his instructions. The two motor sleds because that's what they were basically they were just a couple of caterpillar tracks with a a sort of a board across them yeah so just basically a motorized sled they left on the 24th of october with four men okay they only got 50 miles and they broke down so they really were unreliable stuff yeah so the men had to unpack those two motor sleds put it onto sledges and start pulling these sledges by hand by hand wow now they're not small sledges they weigh over 200 kilos and they needed four men to pull over the snow okay now contrary to belief sledges will only slide if the temperature was kind of warmish all right that kind of created water which froze to ice between the sledge and the ground and then the sledges would slide if the temperature was too cold the snow surface became rough and it created friction and the sledges would not slide. I mean, if you want to know what it's like, try dragging a 200 kilo sledge over sand. Yeah, it doesn't sound that easy. 200 kilos, 440 pound in weight. That doesn't sound easy to pull. Yeah, it's it's not an easy thing to do. And because the motor sleds had broken down, Scott had to adjust his plans and make the dogs do some work. I mean, a couple of weeks into the trek, the weather started to deteriorate. By deteriorate, does that mean get colder? Get colder. Yeah. Get colder. It's pretty fucking cold. Colder, windier. The wind would blow up snow, so it'd get blizzards. Right, okay. That sort of thing, yeah. There were large snowfalls. The ponies couldn't cope with it. No, well, I wouldn't have thought they would. When they had snowshoes for these ponies, they, okay. they put snowshoes on the ponies. Yeah, yeah, some bright spark left them on the boat. Right, okay. That seems a bit <laughs> strange. Yeah, so yeah. you can imagine the hoof of a pony going into snow. It ain't, it's like, no, it's not got any surface area. It's straight no, down, isn't it? It's straight down, isn't it? So, 
but there were large snowfalls the ponies couldn't cope eventually the ponies got shot they couldn't carry on so they 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 killed the ponies but they stored the meat in particular areas for the return trip that's quite sensible it's going to freeze isn't it yeah and there's a place in antarctica called the beardmore glacier and the expedition actually reached the base of this glacier around about the 4th of december okay now a week later they started well they started to climb the glacier and a week later scott sends the the dog teams back okay this left 12 men and three sledges okay four men per sledge yeah okay they are now relying on manpower only okay the beardmore glacier is huge it's 160 miles long by 25 miles wide and it's covered in snowdrifts there are deep crevices there's a fierce wind that just howls straight down it and the average temperature is 20 degrees lower than it is at the coast right okay so fucking cold yeah we're talking 20 degrees centigrade not 20 degrees fahrenheit yeah 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 Yeah. so it took the team until the 20th of december to actually reach the end of the glacier and what they call the start of the polar plateau you're now 300 miles from the pole okay then it was here that scott sent this another one of the sled teams back so now there's only eight men and two sledges right now, Scott's original plan was for the final push to the pole would be made by himself and three others. So, one sledge, four men. Yeah. Okay. On the 4th of January, with 180 miles to go, Scott chose the people who were going to make the final attempt to the pole. Yeah. He chose four. Not three. Not three. Okay. The other three he sent back to the coast. So now there are going to be five men who are going to attempt to be the first to reach the South Pole. Um, Just for information purposes, they were called Edward Wilson, Lawrence Oates, Edgar Evans, and Henry Bowers, as well as Captain Scott. Okay. Uh, This last-minute change is going to affect the team and the returning team. They're going to be one man down for dragging a sledge back. Oh, yeah. And as it turned out, it had other unplanned issues. Yeah. All right. It took an extra half an hour to prepare a meal for five men than it did for four. Yeah. Which... It used more fuel. The sledge would have to be heavier because of the extra provisions needed. Mm-hmm. And the tent that they were going to use wasn't designed for five men. And they didn't realize this at the start, but it meant one of the men would not fit onto the ground sheet of the tent. So they're on the, pretty much on the cold. They're on the ice, yeah. So that person would spend most of the night partially on the snow. Wow. But those five men pressed on and dragging their sledge, and they continued their walk towards the pole. And the journey took a lot out of this group. And by the 15th of January, and we're talking, we're now 1912, same year the Titanic went down. Yep. Yeah. Scott was nearly there. Tuesday the 16th of January, the group covered seven and a half miles in the morning. You know, that's, quite a, lot in that's that. a lot dragging it through those conditions and everything, isn't it? Mm. At about two o'clock in the afternoon on the 16th of January, 
Henry Bowers noticed what appeared to be uh, a cairn or a mound on the horizon. Now, it could be a natural feature. It's what they call a, a sastrugus. Uh, it's wind or erosion formed snow feature. Okay. So they continued walking towards it. About half an hour later, they saw a black speck ahead. Now, yeah. they're in a white world. Yeah. And you got a black a black speck right in the distance. So they walked towards it. It turned out to be a flag tied to a, a sledge runner. Right. Yeah. What's a sledge runner? Yeah, you know, it's the one of the runners that a sledge would be on. Oh right, okay. yeah, one of the I, ski bits. I just imagined a man running with a sledge. No, no, no it's a it's a, just, look at that, a ski that a sledge yeah. goes on. All right. Close by to that were ski tracks and dog paw prints. So someone's been there before, or just slightly ahead of them. Amundsen, Amundsen had actually beaten them to the South Pole. What made it worse was he'd actually done it by three and a half weeks. But the instruments that, that Scott had showed them that they were still a couple of miles short of the pole. Right. So they hadn't reached it yet. But they have found a stick with a black flag and a load of ski things. So they, they found what basically Amundsen would have left there. Yeah. The next day, the five men followed the dog trail until their instruments, that Scott's instruments, showed they'd reached the exact position of the South Pole. Mm-hmm. It had been 79 days since they first started, but at the location, they found a green tent with a Norwegian flag. Oh dear. Yeah. And in the tent, they found evidence that five Norwegians had been there. To add salt to the wound, Amundsen had left some supplies and a letter to the King of Norway. Brilliant. And attached to the letter was a note asking Scott if he would be kind enough to deliver it. (laughs) So he's been a bit of a dick, really. (laughs) So the British team took a couple of photographs to prove that they'd reached it. They stuck a small Union flag in the snow turned around and started the 900-mile journey back. Bloody hell. Talk about being pissed off. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, God, that must have been, like, real disheartening to get all that way. And take all that time. Yeah. In those conditions and actually not be the first. So it was this, I mean... Scott planned fairly well, you know, and he'd got it. So they headed north. Well, they can't go any other direction, can they? No, not really. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was hoped that they would be assisted by the wind mm-hmm. that, that blew. So for that reason, they bought they, they, the sledges were equipped with sails so that the sail could actually uh, assist the yes. men dragging it back because they Absolutely. knew they're going to be tired. They knew that all, all the bits and all the... Uh, that, so it would sort of help them it's quite logical the wind that they were expecting would make uh, would cause a blizzard and they were entering the blizzard season for the antarctic yeah and it would make their task a little bit harder to try and find the supply caches and the so they needed precise navigation 
They needed to be off the ice shelf before the Antarctic winter set in, which meant they had to average 15 miles a day on the return journey. Okay. First couple of weeks went fairly well, but it, it became apparent that the supplies they had were actually lacking in vitamins B and C. Right. So because those vitamins were missing, the group, the five men, actually burnt more calories than they were actually eating. Um, another thing that they found on the on the return journey that some of the canisters that they had their cooking fuel in, uh, some of the contents had actually evaporated, which is a strange sort of thing when you talk about minus temperatures. Mm. But it actually some of the contents had actually leaked out uh, and that left the group with not enough to cook and to heat yeah yeah i see what you mean all right so january the fifth uh january the 25th they reached the major depot where they were able to replenish their supplies but there was no fresh meat there the group had begun to suffer from the cold and the altitude was causing nosebleeds. They had suffering from dehydration, which considering that they were living in a land of frozen water is you know, unbelievable. Um, they, had, you can't eat the snow, can you? they had severe headaches. Well, you didn't have the fuel to melt the snow to drink the water. But your mouth would melt it, surely. In theory. Yeah. yeah. Evans, unfortunately, had cut his hand the day before they reached the pole and and it wasn't healing properly and he began to suffer from frostbite to his fingers and it sort of spread to his nose and his cheeks but on 4th of february they started they reached the beardmore glacier and started to go down it both evans and scott fell into a crevasse oh um they were both pulled back out but evans got a a head injury a little bit of concussion um and coupled with the other things that were not very good um his condition started to worsen and the whole group started to fall behind their 15 mile a day yeah right now scott noted in his diary two after two days after they had fallen Evans is the chief anxiety now. His cuts and wounds have pus coming out of them. His nose looks very bad. And although he signed, uh, and altogether, he shows considerable signs of being played out. That that was written in Scott's diary for die, that particular basically. day. Uh, ten days later, they neared the bottom of the Beardmore Glacier. Okay. Uh, Evans collapsed. He basically took the harness off the pulling harness because mm-hmm. they're dragging the sledge um, and basically just shambled along behind the sledge by midday on that day he'd fallen so far behind that scott had to stop the sledge and then the four went back to him when they found him he was on his knees his clothing clothing was disarranged his hands were uncovered and frostbitten, and he had this sort of wild look in his eyes. He was a little bit delirious. So they stuck him on the sledge, and they took him back to the camp that they'd set up. Yeah. He is not very well. Now, he was actually the strong man of the team. Hmm. You know, he was picked because he was the strong man. Um, they put him in the tent, and he became unconscious. Yeah. 
he died in the tent that night. Well, it kind of sounded like he was going to at, at some point. So the whole world was white. There was no features, and navigating is like really, really difficult. They couldn't locate the tracks that they'd made a couple of weeks before. So locating the supply drops took a lot longer than they'd actually planned for. Mm, that makes sense. Um, still, the four of them, they persevered. They kept walking across across the Great Ice Barrier towards the next supply drop, which they'd planned to rendezvous with the dog teams. They got there three days ahead of schedule. So they, so they did, they did really, really well. They got there. Dogs never turned up. Ah. That causes a bit of a problem, I suppose. Just a little bit. Um, and the next weeks showed a substantial deterioration in the remaining four. Uh, Lawrence Oates started to get a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, frostbite, that gangrene in his feet, it made it almost impossible for them to walk more than a couple of miles a day. And he knew he was slowing the group down. Part of the problem was down to the fuel. We've already said that some of it had evaporated. They didn't have as much as they thought. Their clothes, and especially their socks, became soaked during the day. There was insufficient fuel to dry them overnight, so they were forced to sleep in their wet clothing inside the sleeping bag. They also had to eat cold food, which reduced their calorie intake, and and it made the situation just much worse. The weather was colder than they'd expected, um, this was due to the wind. Uh, the, the the wind made it just so much colder. Snow blindness became a factor. Mm. All right. And, and snowstorms made things worse. On the 15th of March, Oates told the other three he just could not go on. He asked them to leave him in his sleeping bag, but he was persuaded by the other three to carry on. They only made a couple of miles. The following morning, Oates was just disappointed that he was still alive. He conveyed this to Scott. They were all inside the tent with a big blizzard blowing outside. And Oates just said to the others, I'm just going outside. I may be some time. He was never seen again. So he sort of knew what he was doing. Yeah, his body was never found. Right, okay. Sounds... But I suppose when you think about the logic, he knows he's slowing the group down, they might not make it. He's sort of saving his friends, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Um, The three men trudged on, but they only managed to make a couple of miles a day. Scott's feet were becoming frostbitten. Um, He was finding it impossible to walk. Uh, he later wrote in here that his right foot was so frostbitten, amputation would be the only option. On the 19th of March, the men set up their tent. They were 11 miles from one ton depot. That's not bad. Okay. The next days, the men were trapped in their tent during a really, really bad blizzard. There's nothing they can do. They've just got to sit there and wait until the weather actually broke. They were exhausted, they were cold, they were suffering from frostbite, um, and they all wrote their letters and wrote down, because they've got nothing better to do, they Mm. sit and they write. So they're sitting in their tent. Uh, This is the 15th of March, and we're talking 1912. Uh, Back at the main camp, excursions had been sent out to try and make contact with the returning group, 
they'd all returned without success. Uh, Antarctic summer gave way to Antarctic winter. Scott and his team didn't arrive. They just they just did not get there. When the winter ended, the people on the coast sent teams out to try and find them. Their tent was eventually found on the 12th of November, 1912. The bodies of Scott, Wilson and Bowers were still inside. Oh. From the positions that they were in, it was evident that Scott was the last one to die and he died on or about the 29th of March. Bearing in mind they were found on the 12th of November. The 29th of March. That was the last diary entry that Scott wrote. And he says, We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker. Of course, the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. That was the last entry in Scott's diary. Wow. It ended with the words, For God's sake, look after our people. Their journey had taken them 150 days. To walk back? To get back to that point. Wow. Uh, news of Scott's death didn't reach Great Britain until February the 11th, 1913. So let's sit back and think. That is the story. But what went wrong? Scott landed on the Antarctic 69 miles away from the pole than Amundsen. Well, when he was only 11 miles from getting back. Okay. He used ponies. They're, yeah. they're unsuited to the climate. Dogs and motorised sledges which broke down um, and he had to eventually rely on manpower amundsen used dogs only mm. scott didn't use skis amundsen did he didn't use skis couldn't ski they took skis with them but nobody wanted to the british oh we don't need to learn typical arrogant british people decided they didn't want to learn how to ski so they never used them well that's yeah i mean that seems like the most stupidest thing yeah ever. the ponies they didn't use their snowshoes. Mm. The rations lacked sufficient calories. Scott's rations didn't have vitamins B and C in them, knowing that that was going to cause problems. Yeah. The ponies needed to wait until there was good weather before they could attempt any trek. Mm. The dogs yeah. could have done it. Uh, could have left earlier. Yeah, that's true. Dogs can eat seals and penguins, which is all things that are found on the Antarctic. The ponies, all their food had to be carried with them. It's all hay. Yeah, so you're carrying extra supplies, weight. Yeah. One ton depot was miles away from the from the, the pole, further than planned. Scott died eleven miles from it. If they'd have put one ton depot where they should have put it. Scott had 20 miles to spare. Yeah. He'd have made the depot with fuel, with food, with shelter. Yeah, with 20 miles to spare, so he'd have made it a few days ahead of time as well. Yeah. The extra man on the final leg to the pole caused a strain on the fuels and the ra- uh, on fuel and the rations. Yeah. The tins of cooking oil left along on the return route, they were found to be partly empty. Okay, because of evaporation, which had forced the men to eat frozen food. Shortage of fuel to melt the water caused the men to become dehydrated. 
and apparently the it's the heat from what sun there was had vaporized part of the fuel enabling to escape through the cork stoppers yep. on the top of the bottles amundsen he's norwegian he knows this he had the fuel tins soldered shut on the uh, voyage to the antarctic he'd actually soldered the lids down so that nothing could escape the British yeah. had no experience of dealing with things like that. No. Well, he, Amundsen would have dealt with that every day, more or less, yeah. in Norway. The weather, funnily enough, the winter of 1912 was the worst winter there had been in Antarctic for 15 years. The temperatures were 20 degrees centigrade lower than they should normally have been. Wow. Scott didn't use very many supply points. Amundsen used loads. Where Scott used two points, Amundsen yeah. used seven. Right, so he had more more supplies on the way back. Amundsen had the last 180 miles of his route marked using marker flags every eight miles. Bearing in mind it's completely white, marker flag you are going to see at a long, long distance. Yeah. He painted the fuel containers black, which resulted in one fuel container every mile. You can see them. Mm. Every three miles, he built a six-foot cairn, pile of snow, with a note inside recording the position and the distance and direction to the next one. He was really well prepared. Each depot had been laid out in a line, and they had a line of bamboo flags out every half a mile for five miles on either side of the depot so that when they got there, they had a 10-mile window that they could... Oh, there's the flags. It's going to be to the left or to the right. Mm. You know, you've got a, you're coming up to something and for Almost five like miles either side of it, there is a line of flags. Yeah, you know where you're going. Scott marked his depots with a single flag. It's a big difference. Uh, Scott's team suffered from snow blindness. Mm -hmm. That's the fact that the sun and the brightness hits the snow yes. and reflects up into your eyes, causing you to really squint and, and not be able yeah, to see it's very really, well. really dangerous when you're skiing as well. Yeah. So Amundsen's team travelled mainly during the night hours when the sun was behind them and they rested during the day when the sun was directly ahead. They didn't suffer with snow blindness. Hmm. Amundsen loaded his sledges in a particular way, which meant they could remain loaded until, the times, until everything was needed. Scott had to unload his sledge and reload it every single time. Tents were put on the bottom. See, that's just not that's not sensible. You do it in yeah, so Amundsen's just a little bit more regimented in what he's yeah. he's thought it out. Which is why Amundsen got there first. Yeah. Scott got there. And if it wasn't for Amundsen changing his mind, yeah. He would have got there first. But Scott didn't come back. Amundsen and every single one of his expedition did. That's the story of Robert Falcon Scott. Known or better known as Scott of the Antarctic. 6th of June 1869 to the 29th of April 
1912. He died two weeks after the Titanic went down. Hmm. Not a good year for the British, really, was it? Scott was 43 when he died. I mean, having reached the South Pole first, Amundsen went on to be the first man to the North Pole because Frederick Cook and Robert Peary's claim to have done so was actually disproved later on. And Amundsen died in a plane crash while searching for another explorer in the North Pole in uh, June 1928. Wow. So there you go. Amundsen was 55 when he died. Yeah, and and has a little bit more of a a claim, I suppose. To people have heard of Scott the Antarctic, they yeah. may not have heard of Amundsen. I, I've, like I said, I when I at the start, I said I have heard of Scott of the Antarctic, but I didn't know if it was like a a TV show or do you know what I mean? That that mm. sort of thing. You you've heard it, but so there you go. You can't quite picture it, but yeah, it's weird. But then again, I suppose it's the fact it's a, that it's a British failure. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't a failure because he did get there. Yeah, he got there. But, you know, he just didn't get there first. No, um, no, that's right. We tend to like doing things first in this country, so... Yeah, but there you go. Yeah, that's, he's quite interesting. He's definitely... Like I said, it's one I had... I, I mean, the reason I kept pretty much quiet through it, because it's not something I knew anything about. No, I which, threw that. I, I, I surprised you with that one. Yeah, there's, you said don't... I mean, when you said you was looking at it, you said don't don't Google it, don't look at it, so I didn't. Um but yeah, like I said, I had absolutely no clue what this was was <laughs> about. So it's quite a quite a nice one to do. It is. I've got another one like that, but you'll have to wait for that. I mean, I like I like the explorer stuff. I mean, I I do want to do um, the the Northwest Passage, Franklin. Yeah, um, that is, his ships were mentioned in this. Yeah, that's why I said I heard the ships. Uh, I thought I knew the name of the ships. Yeah, the Erebus but, and the Terror. Yeah. So I mean that 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 definitely I know a little bit about explorers, but not this is not one I know. So <laughs> hopefully I wasn't in the same boat with that one. Hopefully there's a lot of you guys out there that haven't heard this one either. So yeah, you'll have to let me know. What do you think of uh, the explorers? What do you think of the British explorers? And you know, should we cover Amundsen at one point? Because sounds like yeah, he's an interesting there seems character. To be quite a bit for that and. I don't know if we've got any listeners in Norway, so if we have got any listeners in Norway, you'll have to let me know. Uh, what do you know about Amundsen? Or, or is, you know, I've had uh, a few messages from from people about different things, and yeah, I've not have not heard anyone from Norway yet. So, if you know about it, let me know, and you know, maybe we can look into that one because I think that'd be quite interesting as well. But hmm. yeah, so thank you for that. Something uh, something very different something we're not not used to on this show so it's normally quite you know you do always tend to surprise us with different things so that's uh that's definitely a new one for me and i'll try and remember this story as well i'm gonna have to listen to this about three or four times now so it sinks in um but yeah no brilliant so thank you thank you for joining amazon's got everything you need for your dorm from everyday essentials and school supplies to clothes and decor to bedding for power naps and regular naps, too. Save on all things college at Amazon. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. 
That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a stuntman to do their home renovations. Just finished the new sunroom, Mrs. C. The best part is I used candy glass for all the windows, so you can do this. And this. Doesn't hurt a bit either. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. And if you don't want to take the long way to the kitchen, the walls are breakaway too. See? For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com slash local today. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.